Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. It is time for another episode of Real Critical with Pat Parker. Uh, I appreciate everybody's patience uh, patience with the delay between episodes. I, I apologize. Um, I got three kids, um, so I don't really think there's anything else that I need to say there. My life is very hectic, to say the least. But that being said, man, let's get right back into it. I'm going to do my best to keep doing weekly episodes. Um, so let's go ahead and finish off this Kill Bill saga. Let's move on to volume two. So last episode, <laughs> talking about Kill Bill, I was drunk. I'm not drunk today. I'm completely sober, which probably means I'll be more pretentious uh, than I was in the last episode. So let's just get right on into it, man. Um this might be a little, this is going to be a little, a little different. Um, I'm going to start with something I don't like, um, mostly, be, mostly because it's at the beginning of the fucking movie. I hate the opening two minutes of this movie. I hate the fact that it's just two minutes of recap. I really do not like it. And I do not understand why it's there. Um, especially since these movies only came out. These movies only came out like, what, six months apart? I think. And I just don't really like it. I don't like the way that it's written. I also don't like the over the top acting that Uma Thurman is doing. And it just really seems out of place. They could have just started the movie with the the next chapter, which was the massacre at Two Pines, where you get that nice black and white scene of what actually happened at the wedding rehearsal. And then obviously the big reveal of David Carradine as our main antagonist, Bill. I think that entire, that entire chapter is wonderful. That entire black and white scene, the way that Bill and Uma play off of each, I mean, the way that David and Uma play off of each other as Bill and the Beatrix respectively, pitch perfect wonderful tension building and i just i love the way that they bounce off of each other if you start the movie there man like just why didn't you start the movie right there quentin um but yeah i just i really don't like that that opening two minutes at all man i really 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 wish it wasn't there to the point that i skip it every time that it that i play the movie now but it's funny is because I've watched the movie so many times, I know all of the words to it. So, so that's, yeah. Well, yeah. Anyway. So you start the movie there and, you know, we get the, we get the real story of what happened uh, at the Two Pines Chapel. And it's great. It's a nice little cameo but, uh, with um, Samuel L. Jackson. And that's a good time. Like he's funny, you know, in the time that he's there, uh, nothing really too much for him to really do. So it's just really cool that he's there. But, you know, obviously, like I just mentioned before, the main reason of this, the main reason for this scene is the reveal of our main antagonist. We finally get to see the man, Bill. And I love that the wedding rehearsal is going on and she just like needs to step away for a second. And then we're introduced to him by his flute. Like, we know that it's him. And it's awesome. Like, you hear that flute, and then you see the look on her face, and you just know it's him. And then the the tension and the music that's playing when she's outside and they're talking. 
top tier filmmaker. I love it. The shot reverse shots between them, the dialogue that they share is amazing. Like the double speak that they have is is awesome. And then the 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 tone completely flips when Tommy comes in. Like the tension is still there, but man, like it's just a complete shift into what they have to do. And it just shows like who they are as people, how they can weave in and out of you know these characters that they've created. You know, as Beatrix and Bill, like they've created these personas. Like there's a real version of them, and then there's a fake version of them. And it's 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 really, really awesome to to witness. And I just really love the opening scene. Um, uh, one thing I don't like about it is when you get that that wide shot. They're pulling out with a wide shot as the Deadly Viper Squad shows up to kill everybody. And we don't see the carnage. Like, we don't get to watch them kill everybody. Like, you pull out and you don't see it. And I don't like the the little fake muzzle flashes that they put on the windows so that you can see that people are, you know, that guns are going off. And then also when you're looking through the window, it seems like the sound of people screaming starts before everybody even notices that, but like before, like everybody turns around and notices people are like, everybody's already screaming and it just doesn't really make sense. It's just the audio isn't lined up. Like, I don't really know, like, Maybe somebody else saw it first and blah, blah, blah. But it just doesn't really seem right to me. So that's really just a nitpick. Um, but yeah, moving forward. And then, man. So I haven't said before. So I jump back and forth between liking this half of the movie better or liking volume one's half better. I really hop back and forth all the time because I really appreciate the dialogue in which that Quentin um, utilized in this version. And after watching the the making of like, you know, um, featurettes on my Blu-rays, I understand why I hop back and forth. It's because in volume one, Quentin says this himself in the featurettes in volume one, you set up all of the questions. And then in volume two, you set up all of the, you give all of the answers. And it was just such a simple way to, to put it. And then when you think about it, that, that, that really is exactly what's happening. In volume one, he's setting up this, this wonderful, rich lore. And he's setting the stage with all of the players and giving you bits and pieces of the story, but doesn't give you everything. And just lets you be like, okay, well, who's this? Who's that? Why did they do this? How did she get here? How did blah, blah, blah. Who's Oren Ishii and why is her name already crossed off the list in the first fucking scene of volume one? But then volume two is a lot more restrained and we're getting answers. You know, we're finding out answers as the audience without Beatrix as well. But then, you know, she finds things out and then she has conversations with Elle and with Bill that fill in a lot of holes for us. And then even the beginning scene of the massacre at Two Pines is an entire sequence of answers for us. You know, like, what was that day like? Like, did they just burst in there and start fucking blasting? Or <laughs> did they talk first? And you, you see everything. And then we're introduced to 
Bud, the Sidewinder. Code, I'm sorry, code name Sidewinder. And Bud is great in this movie. I was watching the featurettes, and everybody was talking about like how good Michael Madsen, he's the actor, the actor that plays Bud. Everybody was talking about how great he is in like every single Tarantino film that he does. And it's like him and Quentin just have this, this vibe that they're on. And so that whenever Michael's in one of his movies, he's just like at the top of his game. He knows what Quentin wants and what Quentin needs for a shot. And I got to admit, man, um, he doesn't do anything stellar here for me. Now, I'm not saying at all that it's a bad performance. Like, in no way at all is there any bad performance in these movies. But, I mean, he's good, you know, but I don't think that's anything, you know, to write home about. Like, like he's, he, he does a good performance. I'm not going to lie. Um, and he actually has some of my favorite moments in in this 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 movie he has a he has a lot of my favorite moments and you meet bud and he's talking to bill and man the history between the two of them is fucking palpable i love the conversation that they're having as two estranged brothers just Something happened between them. And I'm dying to know what it was. But I love it when artists leave things up for interpretation. You know, your guess is as good as mine when it comes to what the fuck happened between Bill and his brother Bud. But the way that they speak to each other is obviously Bill did something because he's fucking Bill. And Bud just hasn't forgiven him. And obviously, he's walked away from the Deadly Vipers assassination squad. Then they haven't spoken probably in years. Uh, Bill even has a line. He just says, can we just forget the past? And And he's there out of love and fear that his brother is going to die. And he even tells him, he's like, you need to start being afraid of Beatrix because she is coming to kill you. And if you do not accept my help, I have no doubt that she will succeed. But you can see it on his face. Like he's exhausted. He's heard that Oren has died. And he's heard at this point that Vernita has died, I'm sure. And now, man, Bud's next on the list. And he knows that. And the way that he says it, man, the the look on his face, the pain, but also the, I'm not going to say I'm sorry. Can you just forgive me? It's wonderful. Like the scene that they share is actually really great. And Bud has probably my favorite line in this movie where he says i don't dodge guilt and i don't try to get away from paying my comeuppance that woman deserves her revenge and we deserve to die i love it how could you not love that man 
like the fam, the maturity, honestly, like fam, like, you know, she, she fucked you over, but what we did, man, that shit was fucked up. We killed her and her baby. Well, actually, no. Oh yeah. He just thinks that we, yeah, because I'm pretty sure that Bud knows that the baby's alive. So yeah. So like, bro, we killed her and this woman thinks that her baby's gone. We killed her husband and her friends. Like we deserve to die for that. But then he even follows it up with like, but then again, so does she for what she did. You know, so it's kind of a, <laughs> um, it's kind of uneven, but whatever. Like, you know, he's also like, yeah, fuck that bitch. <laughs> so, so then the next thing that we see is just Bud's life and the build up to the build up to Beatrix coming to kill him. The conversations um, with you know, where he works and things like that. And I feel like that that scene is kind of unnecessary. Like the whole scene with Bill in the the bar that he works at. I don't really see. Like it tells us a little bit about his character, like what he's been up to and what he's been subjected to. Like what he'd rather be doing than being with his brother due to the fallout that they had. You know, but I feel like there were other ways to portray that. I mean, like, shit, you kind of do like, you know, he lives in this trailer park all alone. And, you know, he's probably a drunk at this point, you know, like, but I just I feel like there were different ways and with less time that you could have conveyed that. Because then the next scene is like, you know, let's be honest, what we're here for. <laughs> um, Beatrix shows up to his trailer and then attempts to kill him. And man, it's it's great. Like it's great. But yeah, man, I don't I really don't feel the need for that bar scene at all. I genuinely do not. I would have cut that out. If I were the director, yeah, I, I really don't think that I would have put that there, but pacing wise, it, it kind of works, but I just think that the bar scene, like having it set there and those conversations that happen, I would have done something differently for pacing, you know? I just would have done something different because basically what Quentin's doing here, again, is one of his staples in directing is holding off the action. But he's also doing a little bit of character development as well, you know, and just like kind of like what he does in Pulp Fiction, like I mentioned in the the last episode. I just would have done something differently there. And then. This movie gets really good at this point. Like, it's already good. We're getting some answers. We're setting the tone. The tension is there. And we're waiting for the bride to start kicking ass. And then this movie gets really good. She gets knocked on her fucking ass. And now this is wonderful for her character development as well. Because this entire, up until this point, including volume one, we've witnessed nothing but her kicking ass. Aside from the opening, like the cold open of the movie of seeing her, you know, be quote unquote killed. We've witnessed nothing but her being the greatest warrior of all time, kicking ass and getting all of her revenge. And now 
Bud shoots her in the fucking chest with rock salt. And now we get to see what Beatrix is made of when her back is against the fucking wall. When she's faced with failure. And this is just, it's beautiful because you want her to succeed. Like I mentioned in the last video, uh, last episode, we want her to succeed. We want her to go kill every single one of these motherfuckers. But then to see her shit presumably die, Loki, it's like, we don't know that it's rock salt when he shoots her in the square in the chest when she opens the door. And it's like the biggest oh shit moment. Well, no, the second, the second biggest what the fuck moment in this movie. And if you see it in the movie, you obviously you know what number one is. And then he just talks to her. Like he doesn't start beating her ass or anything because he doesn't need to. He's one at this point. She's incapacitated. And he even laughs when it happens. It's like, man, like the deadliest woman in the world. And I'm just sitting here waiting for you. As soon as you open the door, it's over with. And then he starts talking to her and taunting her, everything. And then like, it just seems like it's over for her. But like, you know that it's not because we have like two out, like an hour and 40 minutes of movie left at this point. Right, man. And this, that's what's crazy. All of this happens in like the first 20, maybe 30 minutes of the movie. Like it sets the tone. And then we're going to start getting answers. And then we get our reintroduction to L Driver, the California mountain snake. And gives you a little background of the relationship between her and Bud. And they're talking to each other on the phone and they don't like each other because Bud's disrespectful. She's disrespectful. And you kind of don't like either one of these motherfuckers. Right. And then we get to arguably one of my favorite parts of the movie, the introduction of Pai Mei. Once again, I'm going to sing Quentin's praises for the lore that he created for this movie. The introduction of Pai Mei, before Pai Mei, Pai Mei ever co- comes on screen, is, is pretty good. Like you have Bill playing this flute again, and then he's telling Beatrix the story of Pai Mei, just the legend, you know, the man, the myth, the legend, how dangerous he is, the power that he conveys, the respect that he's earned over his lifetime. And that's the thing about this movie is that Quentin takes time to establish the lore. He establishes his characters, the world that they are living in, so that we can be fully submerged. And the main thing is that he takes time to do it And it makes you believe it. It makes you fucking believe it versus other movies out there that will just have quick little lines in passing to try to establish a certain level of severity or importance in things. Uh, Something that comes to mind is that, for example, in volume one, she goes to find Hattori Hanzo and get this legendary sword made. There's so much background that they talk, and then he talks about creating weapons, why he stopped, and the music that plays, the reverence that she gives the the weapons when she's about to touch them, but then stops 
out of respect. And, and you understand the weight here. You believe that Hattori Hanzo is the greatest sword maker of all time in this world. You believe it. And then you have movies like The Wolverine. And that's the one that came out in 2013, where Wolverine goes to Japan, I believe. And then I can't remember like his sidekick in that movie. I can't remember her name. She holds up a sword in a bar. And then before she starts like, you know, getting ready to fight everybody, she's this sword's over a thousand years old and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, okay, if you say so, you know, show don't tell, man. You know, it's just it doesn't hold the same weight as something like this. When you take the time to build out your lore and your world and you get people to invest in it, we will believe it. We will believe it, because then in this movie, you already know how fucking awesome Hattori Hanzo is. You know this shit, yo. Like, come on, man. And. It's just one thing I really love about this movie, man. The lore that's built here. I'm sorry that I keep coming back to lore. But man, like this is... God, the storytelling in this movie is fucking phenomenal. And like like this entire movie, this entire four-hour martial arts spaghetti western epic that it is, the storytelling in here is superb. No one can deny that. Like it's a very simple plot revenge like it's a very simple story it's a revenge story but there's so much going on so much background so much history so much investment from the characters and then you become invested in that because the director took the time to build it out for you questions answers and it's fucking beautiful man like you cannot deny this shit dude like it's beautiful the setup is there, and then the payoff is there. Like, what more can you ask for? And then, so back to back to Pai Mei. <laughs> so back to Pai Mei. Then we get introduced to Pai Mei, and we learn. I'm sorry. So then Beatrice, uh, Beatrix is presumably you know buried alive, and then she starts reflecting on her old teachings with her master to get herself out of this situation. And then we're introduced to Pai Mei. And we see how rocky their relationship was to begin with. And Pai Mei has some of the funniest dialogue in the entire movie. He does nothing but berate this woman and crack jokes at her expense. And it is absolutely hilarious. Like, I can never keep a straight face in this unless I'm trying to. <laughs> unless I'm trying to recite his, his lines that he has in... Um, in Mandarin, I believe. Yeah. And I actually know some of them. So <laughs> if I'm not trying to recite that and then fucking up those words horribly, I'm laughing. Like I'm in stitches. Just the way that he's talking to her, the way that he moves, because it's supposed to be so exaggerated, like the old Shaw Brothers martial arts films. And just like all of those over the top martial arts films, like I mentioned before, like with Bruce Lee. Jim Kelly, you know, all of those old things like Chinese super ninjas and the big boss, their movements were always so exaggerated. Their words were always so exaggerated. 
and animate it. And Gordon Liu, who plays um, Pai Mei, and he ends up playing, um, man, he ends up playing Pai Mei and just give me one second. I'll look this shit up because I do not want to be wrong because I always fucking forget if he plays Pai Mei and Hotori Hanzo or if he plays Pai Mei and um, the guy in the Kato mask from volume one. <laughs> what the fuck was his name? Oh, man. Okay, so he's in Kill Bill, right? Gordon Liu. Let's go to his filmography. 2003. So he plays Johnny Mo. Okay, so he plays Johnny Mo, who's the leader of the Crazy 88s. And then he also plays Pai Mei. And what's actually really cool, right, is that Gordon Liu, back in the day, so he's a huge... Uh, Chinese actor and he was in like a lot of martial arts films like from from years ago that Quentin used to watch when he was a kid. And Paime is not an original character, nor is Hattori Hanzo, right? It's fucking cool to know. So in Gordon Liu's career, he's played multiple like heroes that fought Paime. And Paime was always like this villain, right? And he's fought him. Uh, he's fought Paime before, and now he gets the chance to play Paime, which is really fucking cool. So yeah, it's not an original character, and I found that out watching the featurette. And then the same thing happened with uh, since I'm on the subject with Sonny Chiba, who plays Hotori Hanzo. Hotori Hanzo is not an original character for this movie either. Hotori Hanzo was in a lot of old martial arts films as well. And there's like always a different version of Hotori Hanzo. Like Hotori Hanzo the first, the second, the third. And he's always like he's always like the hero of something. So then now in Quentin's epic, this is like he just says a number, but it's like Hotori Hanzo, the 100th. So like there is myth behind the Hotori Hanzo name. And there's like almost it's just like this fake version of immortality. It's just like a line of Hotori Hanzo's. And it's actually really fucking cool, man. So you meet Paime, and I just, man, I just love this character. The way that he strokes his beard when he's talking, the little noise that he makes, like when he's like, <laughs> when he's like disappointed or just like, it's kind of like, you know, just like, huh. But he just, and he like swipes his beard when he does it. And the way that he, the intensity in his eyes when he like swipes and strokes his beard, like he thinks it's just like the ultimate disrespect and like turns his head so hard and walks away. It's the most over the top animated shit in the movie. And it's so hilarious. You know, like it's so funny, man. It's such a great touch. Just like something really cool for his character. Such a great touch, man. And. We just, we sit there and we watch her train. We see what she put herself through. And the, the thing is, though, it's like, when you realize, when you sit back and think about it, these are the things that she put herself through for Bill. She was already transfixed with this man. She probably also, you know, always wanted to be like, you know, this warrior, you know, and learn from the best because she already knew Kung Fu and everything. But, you know, to be... 
within Bill's, you know, company, she puts herself through this and she thinks it's like, okay, it's not going to be as bad as you think. But then Paime is just like 100% difficult. But you see the determination with her. And Paime has a certain respect for her from jump. Like you, he doesn't say it, but if he didn't, you know, want her to be there, like, you know, he probably would have fucking killed her or sent her the fuck away. And you just, I love the journey that she goes on, you know, and she goes from knowing nothing in Pai Mei's eyes to, you know, knowing everything, to being respected by him, enough for him to teach her something incredible, which we'll talk about later. I love that it is her reflecting on her time with her master that gets her out of the current situation that she's in. We spend the entire, that entire chapter always going back to this like one inch punch that she just can't master. And then that ends up being the catalyst for her to get herself out of this coffin that is buried six feet deep. And it's, it's beautiful, man. This is what martial arts movies were about, man. Understanding your weaknesses and turning them into strengths. Acquiesce, stop, and you have to stop yourself from acquiescing to defeat and believe that you can do something. Because as long as you don't believe that you can't, you never will. And I think that was just a beautiful sentiment because, like I said, it ends up being the one thing that gets her out of her situation. And then she gets up out of there and it's like you're cheering for her, man. It's like it's it's over the top, you know, like how she gets out of there. But it's it's awesome. It's awesome. And then you can't wait for her to get out of there. And it's like, OK, you're out. Let's go fucking kill Bud. Right. But then what's crazy is that Quentin takes that away from us, which I really like as a, a directorial, uh, as a director's choice, well, as a writer's choice, obviously, because he wrote this. I think it was actually really cool for her to not be able to get that revenge on Bud. Because at the end of the day, Bud isn't the end goal. And it's just like, obviously, she wants to kill him, but... If he's dead already, like, you know, she's not going to lose any sleep over it. Like, damn, I didn't get to kill him. Like, it doesn't really matter. So then, you know, she goes to kill Bud, but then L is there. Uh, well, as she's walking back, you know, this whole thing happens between L and Bud. And then obviously she knows that it happens because she she sees L pull up. But she makes the, uh, the strategic business decision to not go and ambush the both of them because i mean it's probably a fight that she won't win because i'm not gonna lie l gives her like a really good fucking fight so if her if l and bud were to fight her yeah bro yeah beatrix would have died i'm sorry so she made that business decision to stand back and see how that shit played out because she already knows the history between them as well so very smart decision on beatrix's behalf uh, on, on on her end and I really love the, the scene between L and Bud, the hatred that they have for each other. Man, it's a wonderful scene that is very opposite 
to the scene that we get between Beatrix and Vernita in volume one, because they're kicking each other's asses. And then there's mute, there's respect there. Like Vernita, you know, she's resentful, probably just because Beatrix is right there, but whatever. <laughs> but there's a mutual respect there. Like Vernita remembers how Beatrix drinks her coffee. And Beatrix reminds Vernita that, no, like, hey, like, mad respect. Like, Bill always told me that you were the greatest warrior with an edged weapon. You know, there's respect. The way that they talk to each other, the quick little laughs that they that they have, even if they both still have their guards up, there is a mutual respect there. With L and Bud, there is a, a mutual disrespect, to say the least. The way that they talk to each other is like you can tell that they don't really want to be there. And you can see it on Elle's face. Like even when they talk on the phone, she hates the fact that that Bud's the person that calls her. And then she even says it um in the in the trailer. Like she hates the fact that she hates the fact that Beatrix died at the hands of Bud because he's a piece of shit. You know, he's an alcoholic piece of shit. And she can't stand him. And that speaks a lot to the respect that Elle has for Beatrix as well. Even though she can't stand her, she has a tremendous amount of respect for her. And believes that she deserves better. And the conversation that they have is great. And then, you know, Bill starts counting his money. And then obviously, ultimately, Elle kills him. And... The reading of basically the the Google search that she did about Black Mamba Snake Venom is sometimes hit or miss for me. Because obviously, she chose a Black Mamba on purpose. It's Beatrix's code name. And then obviously, it's easy for her to frame Beatrix by telling Bill that it was a Black Mamba. Yeah, obviously, hence the name. But I don't know if I'm reading too much into it or not reading enough into it, that obviously some of this is supposed to be akin to Beatrix as well. Like the venom that a Black Mamba, you know, secretes, you know, after, you know, in a single bite, how deadly they are in like the African myth and all of that jazz. But I just don't know, you know, how to interpret it. I'll be honest. I don't know how to interpret everything. I am not a movie guru or anything like that. So... Then, what we all came for, all that action, the big fight between Elle and Beatrix. And it's awesome. Like, it really is. Some of the parts in this fight, to me, seem a little choreographed. I will admit that. Like, it seems like a little robotic. But for the most part, this is a really good action scene. And it's very claustrophobic. And I really... I really like that because it's it's very different from all of the fight scenes that we've experienced up until this point. Vernita's fight scene happened inside of a house, but it went through like so many different rooms. It never really felt claustrophobic. This one takes place just in Bud's trailer. And so there's very little room for them to work with. And it actually takes Beatrix out of her element. You know, she's a very traditional 
fighter, you know, she fights like a samurai, you know, and she like, you know, moves around a lot. You know, she has like, she does flips and stuff when she fights. She's very aerodynamic, um, not aerodynamic. Um, she's very aerial with the way that she fights. You know, she jumps around, she like moves levels, she flips and, you know, she rolls and everything. She's, she's very mobile. But with this fight being in this trailer, that limits her and that puts her in L's element. L is a very, by any means necessary fighter. She's very dirty and will do whatever the fuck it takes. And, you know, that's, that's evident with the way that she, you know, picks things up and hits Beatrix, the way that she hits her below the belt and does like disrespectful things that a traditional fighter would never do. However, Beatrix realizes that fam, like, yeah, I, I can't beat you the way that I would fight in this element. And then she has to become L, basically. She has to fight like L. And then the fight gets really interesting. They just start picking things up and hitting each other with them. And just like, you know, it's a shit. They're, they're trying to kill each other with like household objects. Beatrix picks up a fucking antenna. <laughs> and starts smacking the shit out of Elle in the face. And then she even tries to drown her in the toilet. But then Elle is very, very resourceful and flushes the toilet so that she can breathe. Pretty cool. But then you have things that Elle does that are very, you know, quote unquote dirty. Like she's getting her ass beat, so she'll like step on Beatrix's foot with the heel of her shoe. And then I think that she gets the guitar and like hits her with it, if I'm not mistaken. Like, I think she does. But she does a lot of dirty shit, man. And blow for blow, low key, like they're 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 kind of equal in this sense as well. Like, there's no clear winner. You know, like you can't really say, oh, Beatrix is whooping that ass or L is whooping that ass, right? But then there comes a point where L does kind of get the upper hand. And shit, if Bud Sword wasn't in there, yeah, L might have got the job done. Not gonna lie to you. Then it's a very quick moment because then the fight shifts to Beatrix's element because L goes to get her sword. Well, she goes to get Beatrix's sword, and you know, unbeknownst that Bill's uh, Bud's Hattori Hanzo sword is also in the trailer. So then the fight shifts to Beatrix's element because, you know, hey, she's got the Hattori Hanzo again. Let's fucking go. Right. And they have this like little little standoff. And I love it, man. It's it's a Western, you know, so you, you got to have a standoff. And they talk and Elle talks about how she killed Paime. And we find out how Elle lost her eye. You know, Paime snatched it out. And they have this little standoff, and it's great. The music that's there is great. And then the shot, reverse shot, the seconds leading up to them charging at each other, awesome. Like, it's played with the the music that's in the the movie, and that's great. And they charge at each other, and it's really just this, like, uh, samurai, like, you know, like, I don't really know what it's called. It's like, you know, when they when they lock swords and they're kind of just trying to, you know, overpower each other, like something like that. And then you see that L seems a little a little stronger than Beatrix. 
And Beatrix is, you know, her back's up against the wall a little bit. And so she snatches her other fucking eye out. And it's awesome, bro. Like, it's like the ultimate revenge for killing my master. I'm going to complete the work that he did on you. And it's awesome. And fun fact about this scene. So when Beatrix snatches Elle's eye out, Elle was just supposed to, like, fall to the floor you know, say a couple of things and just, you know, I think like pass out. Like that was originally in the script. But then on a certain take, Daryl Hannah, the actress who plays Elle, took it upon herself to do what's in the movie. All that over-exaggeration, bumping into shit, banging on the window, on the, the mirror in the bathroom and kicking and screaming and saying all of these lines. None of this stuff was in the script. And then she said that she did it because she thought that Quentin would do it and that it would make him laugh. And she was right that he he really enjoyed it and he laughed. And then that's how that ended up being the cut that we see in the film. So I've always really liked that. And then we're coming up. Yeah, man, we're coming up on the end of the movie here. And I love the fact that Elle's... that her life is up in the air. Like we never confirm whether she lives or dies in this movie. Now, Quentin has since confirmed that Elle is most certainly alive. And so is Sophie Fatale. And that would have been the story for Kill Bill 3, that Sophie Fatale and Elle Driver would have trained Vernita's daughter to kill Beatrix. But we're not going to get into that because when I think about them making Kill Bill Volume 3, I get really mad about it because Quentin just like seems to pop up every five or 10 years and say, oh, yeah, I've talked to Uma about it and I wrote some things down, blah, blah, blah. This is what would happen. And like, bro, like if you're never going to make the movie, just just shut the fuck up. You know, like I don't really think there needs to be a Kill Bill volume three, but you bet your bottom dollar. If they made it, I would be the first person to buy a fucking ticket and go watch that shit whatever fucking sue me the movie does not need to to happen but i would fucking be there but it's like bro like if you're gonna if you're not gonna make the movie excuse me if you're not gonna make the movie then just shut the fuck up about it because at this point like why are you still talking about this like why what the fuck anyway what the fuck was i talking about again (laughs) oh okay um I do genuinely love the idea that L driver's fate is left up in the air in this movie. And there's also a nice little Easter egg for people who, if you ever want to watch the credits of this movie, when at the, there's like movie credits for the people who made the movie, but then there's actual like in world character credits. Like he will put like over an Ishii on the screen and he'll like cross it out. And then every single member of the Deadly Viper Association, they get crossed out, but then L gets this like question mark next to her name, which is really cool because like we don't know what happened to her. Because, you know, Beatrix doesn't confirm that she's dead. So I think that's really cool. And I just think it's pretty cool that, you know, it's just left up to, you know, it's just out there that in that world she's still alive. So Beatrix isn't, you know, as safe as she thinks she is. I mean, well, I mean, L's fucking blind, but yeah, but you you get what I'm saying. And then we get to, where does Beatrix go after this? Ah, uh, yeah. She runs into Esteban Vajeo, the, the pimp 
that helped raise Bill. And fun fact about this, actually, about this character, Esteban is played by Michael Parks, who plays the sheriff in Kill Bill Volume 1. And fun fact about that, right? So Quentin also already had an actor in mind to play Esteban Fajal. But at a table read, you know, every at table reads when they read through the script. So, you know, they, they read through things so they know how things are going to go and just like let the actors all be in the same room and get a feel for everything and, you know, get into character. The actor wasn't available for the table read, which which happens, you know, com, you know, conflicting schedules. So Michael Parks just read the part, you know, at the table read so that they can get through it. And then he did it so well. Quentin's like, yo, like. Do you want to play this part? And then just gave the part to Michael Parks, which I think is pretty cool. And then another fun fact inside that. So Quentin Tarantino wrote a movie for Robert Rodriguez in the 90s called From Dusk Till Dawn. You know, the movie about vampires and all that shit. And Michael Parks plays the sheriff in that movie. And he's playing the exact same sheriff. And there's even a line there. That kind of alludes back to that to from Dust to Dawn. I can't remember what it was, but it's in the, the making of Kill Bill uh, featurette if you guys want to watch that. And I thought that was pretty fucking cool too. Uh, but moving on. So then we speak with Esteban Vajeo and Beatrix is talking to him and just learning about Bill. He ends up telling her well, where Bill is so that we can get the final confrontation. And I will say this, the final 30 minutes of this movie, I think it's about 30 minutes, is absolutely fucking fantastic. Here she is driving up to her her destiny. She knows that there's a possibility that she's going to die, but she doesn't care. It's all about trying to harm this man, to kill this man, to get her revenge. It doesn't really matter. And I'll get more, I'll, I'll get to that in a second, that, that feeling of not caring whether or not she lives or die, or just knowing that there's a possibility that she's going to die in a second. She pulls up to his house. Beautiful fucking crib, by the way. Nice little shit. Tries to ambush him. You know, has a gun out and everything. She's just going to end it with the gun. I'm like, okay. And so and she comes out, boom, ultimate, the number one twist in the fucking movie. See, I told you we'd get back to it. Her daughter's alive. Holy shit. The look on this woman's face. The pure disbelief. And you know, my wife said something to me the other day when I was watching this. She's like, you know something like, how does she know that that's her daughter? And... I was like, you know what, man? That's really a good fucking question because she doesn't. Like, she really does not know that that's her daughter. However, what she does know, and this is what I told her, I'm like, but what she does know is this. Bill is a lot of fucking things. He's not a liar. But it also seems like something that he would do. Like, it just seems like something that could happen. Like, you know, the baby survived and he just took her. Bill isn't a liar. Like, I'm not going to parade a baby around, a child in front of you that isn't yours. Like, she like she just knows. Like, that's her daughter. There's no denying it. She knows it and we know it. 
And I think that's also why it never comes up in conversation. Like she never says like, is that my daughter? Did my daughter really die? And is, is this some fake little girl? There's no reason to ask because she knows that it is. And that wasn't good enough for my wife, but <laughs> but she she understands what I'm saying. But yeah, but she's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Anyway, so yeah, we get the big reveal that her daughter is alive. And man, Uma eats this fucking scene, man. The look on her face, the disbelief, the pain, the hurt, the happiness all in one look on her face. All of this has been for you because I thought that I lost you. But here you are. I'm still going to do this for you. But man, it just makes it all the better knowing that you're here. But just like the pain of the last however long that it's been since she woke up to do this stuff. That I've been like I've been aching for you, and here you are. She really sells it for me here, man. The way that her eyes water up. I don't think the the tear actually falls from her face in this scene, but they definitely her eyes are watering, bro. And it's the the way that she like frames her mouth, the way that her body is just still. The way she lets her guard down, like if she's holding the gun up and pointing it, and then she just like drops it. Like she just drops her arms. Because yeah, she can't believe it. Oh my God. It's so good. It's so good. And then once again, Quentin exercises his strength as a dialogue writer. They start having conversations like Bill, Beatrix, and their daughter, Bibi. Like Bill starts telling her stories about BB, you know, about like her and her fish, Emilio. And then Bill starts talking to BB about Beatrix. And then he starts talking to Beatrix about what he told BB happened to Beatrix. And that one day her mother would wake up and come be with them again. And it's such a great scene. Like it's it's so awesome. And then she's just looking at her daughter, just smiling and listening to her. And then they go share a moment in the bed. Like they, she literally climbs in the bed with her daughter and watches a movie while Bill goes down the stairs. And this is another thing, man. It's just Quentin does this so much, but he does it so well also. I'm going to put this twist in front of you, but then I'm going to dangle the final confrontation confrontation in front of you. Boom. Her daughter's alive. Now, now you have to wait because this woman is going to spend time with her daughter. Like that's what she's going to do. And of course, that's what anybody would do in this situation. So they sit down and watch this really long movie, Shogun Assassin. And then BB falls asleep. And now back to the point that I was making earlier about her accepting that she might die. She chose to spend that time with her daughter. And then she takes her necklace off and leaves it with her daughter. Like she puts it like on a picture frame uh, of a picture that her daughter has of her. 
and she kisses her and then she leaves. And just that simple gesture was enough to let us know that she's accepted the fact that she may never see her daughter again. And then we get the final confrontation. She goes downstairs to talk to Bill. And then he shoots her with the truth serum. Then you get Bill's famous Superman monologue, which I really enjoy. But then sometimes I wonder like if it's written that way on purpose, um, because like sometimes I don't agree with it. But then sometimes I do like, is it written that way? Because Bill thinks he's the smartest guy in the world. And like whatever he says is correct. Or is that a really good uh, deciphering of Superman? And, you know, his main thing is that, you know, Clark Kent is Superman's critique of the human race, that he's unsure of himself and, you know, he's weak, you know, shy and nervous, all of this stuff. And it's like, when you think about it, it's like, huh, I don't think that's his critique, but I think that he realizes that those are the types of people that will go under the radar, that people won't look at twice when they run away from danger. It's like, oh, there's Clark with his scary ass. You know, he's running again. Nobody's going to think about that. I, I just don't really know how I feel about that. The whole Superman thing. Like it, I think the way that I just interpreted it is a little a better way to look at it. But just Superman just thinks that those are the type of people that nobody would care about if they ran away in a dangerous situation. I don't think that's his entire critique on the human race. But I like the way that Bill positions it a little bit as well. So hey, cool with me either way. A nice little monologue. And then her truth serum sinks in. And then you find out everything. And at the end of the day, like it's it's because, you know, like she found out she was pregnant, man, and she made a choice for her child. Which I empathize with. I do understand where she's coming from. 100 percent And then they just have this this conversation with each other. And it's great. It's great to hear. It's great to listen to them talk to each other, listen and learn about the love that they had for each other. The love that she had for him, where she was like, before I found out, before I looked at that blue plus sign on that pregnancy test, I was a woman. I was just a woman. I was your woman. I would have jumped off of a bridge onto a moving vehicle for you. I would have done anything for you. But the moment that I saw that positive pregnancy test, that shit was over. I I was a mother. And I made that choice for my child, which is what any parent would do, right? You know, any parent would do that. Like, I'm literally living the life as an assassin, the life of an assassin. And now I just found out I'm pregnant. Well, I mean, well, I mean. If you really loved that life, you probably wouldn't keep that baby, right? Like, I mean, I don't really know. Um, but she made the decision, like, oh, I found out I'm pregnant. And she loved that idea and was just willing to give up everything in the world for her child. What parent wouldn't do that? What parent wouldn't give up everything for their child? I know I would. But then the flip side of that is that you let the man that you love Believe that you're dead. And that's fucked up, man. 
And then Bill even says it. He was like, and for the record, letting someone believe that someone that they love is dead is really fucking cruel. Like, who does that shit? That's not okay, man. Like, she fucked up. Like, that, that, man. But then it's like, you know, then she tells you why. He says, like, why did you run away? And then she just says, once you knew, you would have claimed her. And then she would have been born into a life that she didn't deserve to be born into. So Beatrix has like really good reasoning for the things that she does. But man, like Bill just ain't trying to hear that shit, yo. And then you get answers to her questions as well, which I really love. She even she's just like, I never believed that you could do something like that. Could you do it? I'm sorry. <clears throat> Could you do what you did? And she's referring, obviously, to the massacre at the Two Pines Chapel. Could you do what you did? Yes. But I never thought that you could or would do that to me. And then he says, I overreacted. And then he explains it. He's like, yo, like, I'm a killer. I'm a murdering bastard. You know that. And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. I overreacted. And then he, he explains, I mourned you for three months. And then he says the part that I mentioned earlier, that letting someone believe that someone that they love is dead is quite cruel. And I mourned you for three months. And in the third month of mourning you, I tracked you down. I wasn't trying to track you down. I was trying to track down the fucking asshole that I thought killed you. I don't find them, but I find you. Not only do I find you, but I also see that you're pregnant and you're getting married. And his heart was broken. That's really what the fuck it was, man. The man's heart was fucking broken. And like you said, I'm a killer and I overreacted. I just love the answers that everybody gets. Like they both get closure. Like that's the thing that I really love about the last 30 minutes of this movie. Beatrix gets moments with her daughter just in case that she dies and never sees her again. Bill gets final moments with his daughter, gets, gets final moments with their daughter as well in case he dies. And then they also both get closure with each other. And then no matter, well, obviously, like you want, you know, from a from a story standpoint, you want Beatrix to win. And like just like from a story standpoint, it doesn't make sense for her to come all this way to die. Like it just doesn't make sense. That would have been a really dumb way to end the movie. But if either of those things happened, whether she died or he died, they both would have died the way that Bill died. They would have been ready. And they would have been accepting of what happened. And I think that's the beautiful thing there. That closure provides them the opportunity to die that way. And then this is where lots of people that I've talked to about this movie end up uh, giving me like flack. Because the final fight scene is quote unquote anticlimactic. But it's cinematic. It's thematic. It makes the most sense story-wise. So 
Then she says her her famous line, you and I have unfinished business and a fight ensues. And they go through their thing. I really like the fact they stay seated the entire fight. Like it, it's awesome. And the quick cuts. Um, the quick cuts actually work here for me, actually. I mentioned before, I do not like fight like action sequences with quick cuts. It actually works here for me. I, I genuinely do like it. And then she disarms him and then kills him using Paimei's five-point palm exploding heart technique. See, I told you we'd come back to that, that special technique. Yeah. She performs the five-point palm exploding heart technique. And just like, you know, thematically, as far as the story goes, how else was she going to kill him? You know, shooting him in the head, that would have been really fucking cliche. You know, thematically, this is the best way to send him off because it allows them to have a final moment. Because then they get even more closure. Then they joke with each other. And then you see the love and respect that they had on display one final time. And it's wonderful. Then he even asks her, like, oh, my God, like, he taught you that. Why didn't you tell me? And then, you know, they have a, a quick little conversation. And then he, the last thing that he says before he asks her if I'm ready, like, how do I look? He says, you're my favorite person. He says a lot more, but that's the most important thing that he says there. You're a great person and you're my favorite person. And then he walks off to die. Now, one of this is probably my favorite piece of music in the movie, actually. So he asks her, how do I look? And she says, ready. Then he stands up and like buttons him, like makes himself look good. And then this guitar comes in. And it's actually Robert Rodriguez's band playing in the background, which is really cool. Um, playing uh playing the music for the score. And my favorite piece of music in the movie. And the way that the guitar is playing, and then the the female vocalist that's just, I think she's just vocalizing, honestly. Um, it's it's so beautiful. It's such a wonderful piece of music. It's really loud and dramatic. Then you got the drums coming in, like the bass and everything that come that comes in when he's walking. And then as the, the lore goes, he got hit in those five pressure points around his body, and he takes five steps, and then his heart explodes in his chest. And then that was the story of Bill ultimate culmination of these two movies such a wonderful beautiful heavy moment that was handled perfectly by the director by the cinematographer the actors and the music i think the music really takes it over the top it's just the perfect fucking piece of music then she gets up takes her daughter and lives her life and that's that's the end of the movie man i love it like i love this fucking movie, man. Kill Bill, once again, is the greatest fucking movie of all fucking time. The greatest movie of all time. This is my favorite movie, man. I could talk about this shit for hours. Like It's just so perfect in 
every aspect of the word. I mentioned throughout this video, throughout this episode, that there are there are definitely things that I do not like about this movie, but you put them in there with the rest of the movie and I will endure it. Like I still know all of those parts by heart. You know, all the like the pieces of dialogue, like the, like that opening sequence in this movie, I fucking hate it, but I know it word for word. I'm pretty sure I said this in the first episode uh, when we talked about volume one. This movie made me fall in love with cinema. And I am forever grateful to Quentin Tarantino for creating these characters and making this movie because, man, this movie really set me on a trajectory for being the, uh, set me on a trajectory to be the, the film consumer that I am, the film lover that I am. I look at movies differently because of this movie. I love learning fun facts about production and behind the scenes and Easter eggs and things because of this movie. Everything that I love about cinema can probably be traced back to Kill Bill. It's just such a love letter to martial arts cinema. And I really, really, really enjoy that so much. And I really appreciate it. And he takes everything so seriously in this movie. Even when there's like jokes and things like the movie is taken so seriously. This man takes his craft so seriously as a director. And I love all of this. Like this, my favorite movie of all time. And the last thing I wanted to do was just recap one thing that I said I'd come back to that I really just realized a couple of times after watching, uh, a couple of times ago watching the movie. All of this is Beatrix's fault. Like, let's be real, right? If she didn't take it upon herself to make a decision without consulting the father of her child, none of this movie would have happened. Well, well, there is the idea that, you know, she could have gone and told him. And then, like she said, once you knew, you would have claimed her and then he would have wanted her to be born into that life and, you know, train her from birth and, you know, be a killer. And Beatrix would have wanted that. So maybe she would have taken the baby and left and maybe these events would have happened. They just would have happened later. Right. But this shit happens because of Beatrix, because she makes the decision that she makes for her child. And I kind of agree with it, and I kind of don't. Like, I'm really on the fence. As a parent, I understand doing whatever you believe is necessary for the protection of your children. I would do anything to guarantee the safety of my children. So I really understand her. But then on the flip side, as a father, as well, like as a as, as a father as well, like if my wife took my child away from me without me knowing, I'd be upset too. Like, what the fuck? Like, can you imagine like not knowing that, you know, just living your life not knowing that you have a child, and then you wake up one day and you find out that. Or that that the person that you love is dead. And then you wake up one day and then you find out that they're alive and they're pregnant. And you you know that that child's probably yours. 
Now, I'm not saying I would react that I would react like Bill, like I'm not going to kill anybody or anything like that. But you definitely are going to have a very strong series of emotions. A series of strong emotions, like 100 percent. So I see both sides of the coin here. I can empathize with both of them. But I do believe very strongly that the events of this movie are all Beatrix's fault. It's just action and reaction, cause and effect. I just wanted to say that because I just really thought about that not too long ago. And I think as I was just gushing over the movie before I said that, I think the number one thing that I love about this movie is now after watching the making of featurettes is the theme of the movies. It's questions and answers. What else could you want, you know, from something like this is like revenge epic, but there is lore, there's character development, there is hurt, there's pain, there is myth and legend. There are stakes. And man, like there is an ultimate goal that you share with the protagonist. You want her to succeed. You're invested in these characters. And I think that's probably the best thing about this movie is that you are completely invested in her. You're on her side for the most part. (laughs) And you want her to succeed. And then when she does, it feels good. You feel that she deserves it. And then to live the life with her daughter, like she, you know, like what else could she want? Like she would have been fine getting her revenge. Like she would have felt a relief, but getting to live the rest of her life with her daughter was the ultimate prize there. That was the prize that she didn't think that she would, that she would win. And that's what just makes it all the better. And it's such, such, such a wonderful touch that her daughter was still alive. And I really appreciate Quentin for doing what he did with that and just making this entire movie the way that he made it. It's such a really good movie. And I have such a good time with it every time that I watch it. And yeah, I think I think now is a good a place as any to stop. Thank you guys so much for going on this hour plus journey with me about Kill Bill Volume 2. And I really, I really hope that it's a good ending to the series, to this series of episodes for you guys. And I hope that I've explained why I love this movie so much. And hopefully after hearing what I have to say, you guys will appreciate the movie a little bit better. Maybe you guys hate Kill Bill. I don't know. I genuinely believe Kill Bill is the best movie that he's ever made that Quentin Tarantino has ever made. And that's probably a hot take that I have uh, amongst my friends because they, well, they just think that other things are better. But anyway, we're not going to go there right now. Um, I really hope that I brought some insight to you and maybe help you appreciate the story a little more. But if you disagree with me on things, please, please, please let me know. Um, It's all about the conversation, man. And I Thank you guys for listening to this episode, and I will see you guys this week for a episode of, and here's your clue, it'll also be the title of the next episode, The Greatest Legacy Sequel Ever Made. That will be the movie, that will be the topic of the next episode, that movie, very near and dear to my heart, 
And I will explain why in that episode, but that is your clue. The greatest legacy sequel ever made. And I will see you guys again on Tuesday. Thank you for listening.